So today I say again, look around. This is the body of Christ, and we're on a mission. And the mission is to share with the lost world the gospel of Christ, to share this witness testimony of the water and the blood and the spirit. And one of the ways we can do that is you probably see around me these shoeboxes surrounding us. And inside of every one of these shoeboxes will be the gospel message of Jesus Christ in the language of the children to which it will arrive. So it's not too late. I gave a challenge that five shoeboxes for every family, and it does look like we're way up. It's our hope that we would break every record for the last 20 years this year, and we should because we're way bigger than we've ever been in 20 years. So uh, it's, you still have time. If you haven't uh, chosen to do that, you can do that this afternoon. The shoeboxes will uh, be received today up until 7 o'clock tonight. And there's a second part. If uh, we could use some help loading the truck out tonight at 7. And if you're available and like to come help us load the truck tonight, we'll be doing that around 7 o'clock. We'd appreciate the help. Today is number 12, uh, the last session in the First John study. And logically, it's called The End. This book we call 1 John is short by biblical standards, but it covers a lot of spiritual ground inside those five chapters. It talks about, begins with the word of life, then the message of light, the truth about righteousness, the new old commandment, and then John says, don't do it. Don't follow the world. And then he says, don't follow the world. The Antichrist is coming. And then keep them safe, reveals the children of God, tells us not to be like Cain, announces the spirit war, reveals the true believers, and then the end. Before I read the first verse that describes the conclusion, what I call the end of 1 John, let me read the verse we closed with last week to kind of bridge the gap between the two. 1 John 5 verse 11. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have God's son does not have life. Do you get the feeling that John is in the middle between God and man? When he makes this statement, a messenger relaying all the information that he experienced with his time with Jesus and now under the Holy Spirit. Because John in this verse makes this statement, and this is what God has testified. I'm just telling you what God told me. This is what God has testified. John wants everyone to know that this is not from John. It's from God. So when you read 1 John, 2 John, you need to understand this is not, boy, it got dark in here. <laughs> this is not from John. This is from God. God has offered eternal life to dying people. That sets the stage today. God has offered eternal life to dying people. God has offered immortality to mortals. 
He has given us eternal life, and this life is in a single location, a single person. This life, eternal life, immortality to mortals, is in his Son. Receive the Son of God by faith, and you receive this life. Inside of you will come life, eternal life, but you must receive the Son to receive this life. And this is what God has testified. So let's go over to the Gospel of John. Same John, different writing. John 3.16, you all know it. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. To save the world from what? He doesn't want you to perish. And without the life of the son inside of you, you will perish. You will die. An eternal death. And this is what God has testified. Let's jump to John chapter 5. I tell you the truth, Jesus says. Those who listen to my message, I'm going to hold it up. I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins. Somebody say hallelujah. But they have already passed from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when the dead... We'll hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen to that voice will live. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted, the Father has granted the same life-giving power to the Son. And those who listen to the voice of the Son of God will live. And those who listen to the voice of the Son of God will live. And those who listen to the voice of the Son of God will live. And those who listen to the voice of the Son of God will live. And this is the word. This is it. And those who listen will live. Are you listening? In the book of Revelation to all seven churches, he asked the same question. If you had ears to hear, would you listen and understand to what the Spirit is saying to the church? And this is what God has testified. Who would turn this down? Who would turn down the very fact that you're mortal and you know you're mortal and you know one day you're going to die and you know it. You don't know anybody that's 200 years old, so that ought to be enough evidence. Who would turn this down? The answer is clear. Unbelievers, you don't believe it. I was watching TV just recently, and there's this commercial that keeps playing, um, at least on the channels that I watch, kind of old school TV. But um, it's, it's a, I think it's a cancer drug called um, Optivo. And what caught my attention by this cancer drug is over and over, there's this thing, this sign that comes up over top in the, in this, like in the heavens. And it's this voice, it says, a chance to live longer. This medicine in cancer, maybe somebody here has even taken this medicine today, it's promoted with a single idea to take this medicine in your sickness and it gives you a chance to live longer. 
Now, listen, if you believe that medicine worked, you'd take that medicine. Yeah, you would. You would take the medicine. You would do it, buy it at any cost to give you a chance to live longer. The whole gospel is the revelation of God written in the heavens and on the earth and through the apostles and a witness testimony of the water and the blood and the spirit that what? He's given you a chance not just to live longer. He's given you a chance to live forever. God has offered eternal life to dying people. He has offered immortality to mortals. The only way anyone would turn this offer down is to refuse to believe it and refuse to receive it by faith. This was made clear by the Apostle John's chapter on the spirit of Antichrist. A deceptive spirit that can put thoughts in our hearts and mind. Deadly, lying thoughts in this spirit war. So when the truth is revealed to you, the other voice says, oh, don't pay any attention to that. You don't, we'll deal with that one day, but not now. These unbelievers don't just become neutral in the spirit war. Church, understand something. No one is neutral in the spirit war. Now, when unbelievers choose to unbelieve, refuse to believe, they join the army of Satan and become the adversaries of the Word of God. No one is neutral in the spirit war. Each of us chooses sides. Do you doubt that? Can't we just sit back and wait and see how this thing plays out and jump in at the last minute? In Matthew 12, 30, here's what Jesus says. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Those who work against Jesus, and we'll label them as unbelievers. Those who work against Jesus will deny what? This. They will deny the Word of God, the Bible that reveals the Son of God, and eternal life that comes by His name. Those unbelievers will promote their own doctrine, their own word, their own opinion in place of the Word of God. The Apostle Paul warns the church about the spirit of Antichrist that takes your eyes off of the Word of God and puts your eyes and ears on the Word of man or the word of government, or the word of whatever, but just not the word of God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. The Apostle Paul gives the church a warning. 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow what? Deceptive spirits and teachings that come from where? From whom? Demons. Maybe you're in the room today and you say to yourself quietly, I don't even believe in demons. You will. One day you will. These people, verse 2, are hypocrites and liars. Their consciences are dead. They're dead. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't think. They've been deceived. Now, all of that is to set up the end of 1 John. His conclusion, I hope you're ready because this is how John brings his letter to a close. Let's start with verse 13, chapter 5. 
I have written this to you who believe. I have written this letter to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know. I've written this letter to believers so that you may know that you have eternal life. First, I want you to notice who John is writing this letter to. He's writing it to believers, to you who believe. Unbelievers are never going to get it because they don't believe it. Believe what? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in human flesh. Jesus was the Word made flesh. The Word made human. The Word made human. Human made the Word. He's the same person. This letter is written to believers throughout the generations for a common purpose so that you, church, you might know that you have eternal life. When? Because that's the question, and that's what the church still struggles with. So that you might know. I write this letter, John says, so that you believers would know you have eternal life. But when will I have eternal life? In the future? No. Now. Now. You already have eternal life in you. If you have Christ in you, you already have eternal life in you because eternal life in you is Christ in you. You're just waiting for a new body to put it in. I repeat this word of Jesus from the Gospel of John. I'm going to read it again. Verse John, the Gospel of John 5, 24. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. This is not a future event. They have eternal life. You listen to my message and you believe in my son. You believe in Jesus as the son of God. They will never be condemned for their sins. And what do you think condemnation in God's scale would look like? Death. Separation. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already... They have already passed from death to life. Already. It's not just a future event. Christ in me, born again Christ in me, I've already passed, crossed over from death into life. In verse 25, and I assure you that the time is coming. Now he's talking about a future event. Indeed, it's here now. When the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, the spiritually dead, from the time of John to today, will hear the voice of, they'll hear the word of God. They'll hear the, vo hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who listen, they will live. The Father has life in himself. He's the only one that has life in himself. And he, the Father, has granted the same life-giving power to his Son, Jesus. So if the Father has life, he's the origin of life, the source of life, and he gives the same life-giving power to his Son, and his Son moves inside of you, what will happen to you? You will have life, eternal life. Today, in this final session from 1 John, I want to encourage you with this truth. Church, this is so big, but you have to believe it for it to be big. You already have eternal life in you. You're just waiting for a new body to put it in. You have already passed over from death to life. You're already. Do you understand the power of that? 
you will never die. Your soul cannot die because God is giving life-giving power to the Son and the Spirit of Christ has moved inside of you. You can never die. Your body, your tent might die. They might fold it up and put it away somewhere, but you are not a tent. You are the soul. You are a soul. Today, let me ask all of you this question. And I want you to really think about it. Do you believe right now, today, this second, that you already have eternal life? That no matter what could happen to you from this day forward, you already have passed over from death into life. And that no power in heaven and on earth or under the earth, no power can take away from you the life that Christ has placed in you by his presence inside of you. Do you believe that today? So why would you fear, if you believe that, why would you fear anything or anyone? Your greatest and most powerful enemy called death has been defeated by King Jesus, the Son of God. But you have to understand this truth. This would only apply to believers. It's what separates us from the rest of the world. We believe this thing that to them is unbelievable. But we believe it. Don't you? And that's just the first verse of John's final chapter I call the end. Here comes the next part. Verse 13. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And we are confident, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. Our heavenly father is watching and listening to his children. Do you believe that? I've asked you a question. Do you believe that you already have eternal life in you? That you've already crossed from death to life? Well, let me ask you a second question. Do you believe that the Father in heaven is listening to and attentive to his children? Are you confident in that truth? This truth reveals much about the believer's prayer during our time of waiting. How we pray in our time of waiting. Jesus covered this prayer topic, and I like to refer to it as seek and knock and ask. In the time of waiting, what do we do? We seek and we knock and we ask. During the time of waiting for our King. So I want you to look at that. Luke 11 verse 9, the teaching of Jesus. He says, and so I tell you, keep on asking. A lot of people come to me and say, well, preacher, I prayed about it, and you know what? Nothing happened. How, how long did you pray about it? Well, once. Keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Who's saying that? It's not me. Jesus said, keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you'll find it. Keep on knocking, 
and the door will be open. For everyone who asks, receives, and everyone who seeks, finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be open. And then he does something. So we're seeking and knocking and asking the Father for something, right? Seeking, knocking, asking the Father. And Jesus says, just keep doing it. And then Jesus does something. Jesus then reveals, okay, how you see your Father in heaven might have an effect upon how you see your earthly Father as well. So then he says in verse 11, you fathers. Now, now he's saying, he's taking the attention off of the heavenly Father, and he's trying to get the family Father involved. You fathers, if, you, if your children ask you for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask you for an egg, would you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people, if you sinful earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now this is so important. A lot of people read that and you miss the whole second part. How much more would he give you what? The Holy Spirit. Did you catch it? How much more will your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? When we seek, knock, and ask for the things the Holy Spirit is seeking. Listen, church, this is so crucial in prayer life. When we seek and knock and ask for things that the Holy Spirit inside of us is seeking and knocking and asking for, it's Jesus inside of us that's doing the asking. Do I need to say that again? When I seek, when the desire of my heart becomes that which the Holy Spirit has inspired within me, who's actually asking the Father? Jesus. Do you see the difference? This is not a self-centered prayer. This is a God-centered prayer initiated by the Holy Spirit, Christ in me. Are you confident when you pray, or is your prayer given in doubt and unbelief? So do you think it matters when you pray if you, down deep inside of your own heart, think, well, this is pretty meaningless, but I'll try it? Is, does that reflect your prayer life? Well, I know it's not going to work, but I, I, I feel like I ought to ask. In, the, in James 1, verse 6, he says, when you ask him, when you ask the Father, be sure that your faith is in God alone. And do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Anybody listen? Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Well, when you pray, wavering about whether or not he even cares anything about you or whether or not he's a good father or not. When you pray with that in your mind, you're not going to receive. He said, you shouldn't expect anything from the Lord. Why? Because verse 8, their loyalty is divided between God and the world. You're trying to play between the two fathers. You're trying to be somewhat obedient to the heavenly father and somewhat obedient to this, this father called Satan of this world. And you're, you have a divided loyalty and your prayer life has no power. 
They are unstable in all they do. Okay. We already have eternal life, and our Father is watching and listening to our prayers during the time of waiting. Waiting for our King's return so that we might receive a, a new body that our soul will be put in. Next. Here we go. Now we're going to get into some deep, deep water. On this issue of prayer and power. John doesn't end his letter with something easy. It's deep water. Verse 16. John says, if you see a Christian brother or sister sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray. Let me say it again. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray for them. And God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death. And I am not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin. But not every sin leads to death. First, do you see the power of intercessory prayer? Before I get into the detail, do you see the power of intercessory prayer? You going before the Father on behalf of somebody else, a fellow believer, a brother or sister in Christ. Do you see John describing a Christian brother or sister following dangerously into sin? That's the second point. Can you see John is describing a real life event where there's a brother or sister falling dangerously into sin? What do I do? When I see somebody falling dangerously into sin, what do I do? Pray for them. We are called to pray for fellow believers that are struggling with sin. Fellow believers that are struggling with truth. Fellow believers that have wandered off the straight path to the narrow gate. They've wandered away. And maybe they don't have a clue that they're wandering away, but you've been given eyes to see, and you can see they've, they've wandered off the road. We should pray that God will reveal to them the light of truth and save them from death. We should intercede for these believers who have fallen into sin, the sin that does not lead to death. Notice that. We should intercede for these believers who are in a sin that does not lead to death. And what is that sin that does not lead to death? There's why I said this gets deep. God will listen to our prayers for these, those who have fallen into a sin that does not lead to death. Pray. We should pray for them. And God will hear our prayer. And God will rescue them because they're not in a sin that leads to death. What is that? What is the sin that leads to death? Why? Why, is, why is that important? Why does John bring that up in the closing of his letter? Because, listen, even if you pray for them, God will not listen to your prayer for those. That's a serious issue, which means intercessory prayer will not even help in those situations. So, that makes us think deeply, what is it? He doesn't clearly define it, so let's do something. 
Let's begin with some biblical examples of sin that lead to death. And when I say sin that leads to death, God issued a sudden, immediate death sentence. In the Old Testament, there are some examples of when something happened, when a sin, a certain sin occurred. God himself, not man, sometimes God would issue the the decree to men, but God would issue a, a sentence of sudden death. These are not all, what I'm about to read, they're not all, but they reflect a situation when God's judgment comes suddenly. This is an Old Testament example of sin that leads to sudden death, sudden judgment, okay? So if there is a sin that leads to death, what would it look like that you can't pray your way out of, that you can't recover from? What would it look like? So uh, here's the first one. And it's not all inclusive. I want you to know that. But the Word of God is truth. If you want to understand how God thinks, it's revealed in the Scripture. Leviticus 20, verse 2. Give the people of Israel these instructions, which apply both to the native Israelites and to the foreigners living in Israel. If any of them offer their children as a sacrifice to Molech, they must be put to death. The people of the community must stone them to death. I, God, I myself will turn against them and cut them off from the community because they have defiled my sanctuary and brought shame on my holy name by offering their children to Moloch, the false god. And if the people of the community, and if the people of the community who know that they're offering their kids to Moloch, and if the people of the community ignore Those who offer their children to Moloch and refuse to carry out my judgment, refuse to execute them, I myself will turn against them and their families and will cut them off from the community. This will happen to all who commit spiritual prostitution by worshiping Moloch. I told you a few weeks ago, it was a sin that brought down a nation. It brought down Judah. Go back and read it. In that instance... God issued a death sentence. And if the people didn't carry out the death sentence that God issued, he would come against them. Let me give you another example. Numbers 18.22. From now on, no Israelites except priests or Levites may approach the tabernacle. Now God had established a holy place. And when he established the holy place of his presence, he says, from this point forward, no regular person can approach me. Only the priests and only the Levites can approach me. If they come too near, they will be judged guilty and they will die. Only the Levites may serve at the tabernacle And they will be held responsible for any offenses against it. This is a permanent law for you to be observed from generation to generation. The Levites will receive no allotment of land among the Israelites. In fact, let me give you an application of that law. And let let me give you the basis of that. 
God wanted the people to learn how to discern the difference between holy and unholy, between righteous and unrighteous, between good and evil. In fact, the very first priests, the sons of Aaron, fell victim to this sin that led them to a sudden death. Failing to distinguish the holy from the unholy. Failing, ultimately, to dishonor the holiness of God. Church, understand that God is holy. And to approach His holiness unclean in this situation brought certain death. Let me read it to you. Leviticus 10 verse 1. Aaron's sons. These are the priests. The priests that were allowed to enter the presence. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, put coals of fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. You might wonder, well, what's the big deal with that? That's not what God told them to do. In this way, they disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire. Different than he, the holy God, had commanded. So, fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up. And they died there before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, I will display my holiness through those who come near me. I will display my glory before all the people and Aaron was silent. Those were his two sons. And God just executed them. Some of you would say right now, and rightfully so, I'm glad I didn't live in that Old Testament world. But be careful. Hold on for a moment. It also happened in the New Testament. It happened in the church age. The church was just beginning when Ananias and Sapphira lied about their offering. If you look at the scene I'm about to read to you, many were coming to faith in Christ and they were, they were selling property and bringing the money from the sale of the property and bringing it to the apostles and they were, they were spreading it around as the church was being spread around the region. But Ananias and Sapphira deliberately lied about how much they got for the property and then brought the offering, which was under a lie, to Peter. Acts 5 verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell. In other words, what he's saying, nobody told you you had to sell your property and bring the money. You did that as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. No one demanded the 100% of the sale of your property. We didn't do that. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us. Peter said, you're lying to God. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. God executed him. What? In the New Testament church age, he executed him. 
And everyone who heard about it was terrified. Would you go to that church next week? I bet you'd come bring a tithe. Also in the New Testament, what, what is this? What, is, what are these things that God just steps in and does judgment? What, what are they? And why? And why does John say there's some sin that, that all sin leads to death, but some you can recover, right? Some you can pray back, but some you can't. In the New Testament, in the church age, there was a guy named King Herod Agrippa. He put James, the brother of John, to death, had him executed. And he got up not long after he executed James and he made a fancy speech and he got too big for his britches is what my grandma called it. And in Acts 12, 23, God's judgment came. Instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. So I'm going to ask you a question. We're searching out the scriptures to find the truth today. Do you see any common thread in the Old and the New Testament examples? In the Old Testament, they sacrificed their children to Moloch. And God came and brought judgment. They brought unholy fire into the presence of God, disobeying God's clear instruction. And he executed judgment immediately upon two priests. But in the New Testament, they lied to the Holy Spirit that they might find favor among men, that they might look good in that crowd that day. All the other people were bringing these big offerings, so they wanted to get in on it while it was fresh. So they played the game and they died. And King Herod, he refused to give glory to the one who is glorious. These people didn't get a second chance. None of them got a second chance. No one had time to intercede for them with holy prayers. Aaron couldn't jump in and somehow pray to God and stop the fire. It's too late. God brought this sudden judgment upon these people. So where's the line? That's what everybody wants to know. What is the sin that leads to death? What is the sin that leads to death? And what sins... Are we allowed to commit and still come back to repentance? That's what everybody wants to know. I'd like to know. But I'm going to tell you, listen, ready? I don't know. I don't know this. I don't know where that line is. But I do believe there is a line. There is a point, church, listen. I don't know what the line is, and, but I know there's a line there is a point of no return. And here's the best way I can describe it after studying the scripture. There are sins that lead to a stumble. And there are sins that lead to a way of life. And they are different. There are sins that you trip into. 
And there are sins that you choose to go into that transform your life. Paul's letter to the church in Rome says there is a point where God will turn them over to a reprobate mind, a depraved mind that is absent of the spirit of truth, that is absent to life itself. That God has turned them over. They crossed the line. You cannot come back. You will not pray them back. You will not preach them back. They will not come back. Some use the word apostasy to describe that line. The place where you fall away from God's grace and turn your back on God's grace and mercy. The Bible clearly says that apostasy is real. The Bible clearly says that apostasy brings destruction. Thus, the warning from John back in chapter 2, back in chapter 2, I'm going to read it, 1 John 2, 24. So you must remain faithful to what you've been taught from the beginning. I'm going to hold it up. You must remain faithful to what you were taught from the beginning. And if you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And this fellowship, in this fellowship, we enjoy eternal life that He has promised us. Apostasy is rebellion. All sin is rebellion against God. But why would a Christian rebel? Why would a believer rebel against God, the very breath of life? If you've not learned anything from this John, 1 John series, you must understand the spirit war and the power of the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is real. The spirit war is real. The adversary is real. And he is a deceiver. The spirit of Antichrist is rebellion against God. The spirit of Antichrist is rebellion against God. It is the source of the rebellion, the apostasy. And this spirit brings destruction upon those who join in the rebellion. I've read it a thousand times. I'm going to keep reading it until he comes. 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, this is Paul's warning to the church. Let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we, the church, will be gathered to him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision or revelation or a letter supposedly from us, don't be fooled by what they say. That day will not come until something happens. Until there's a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. The one who brings what? Say it out loud. The destruction. He's bringing it. He, the Antichrist, will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God. And every object of worship, he will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Jesus calls it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is a point of no return. I remember when I was a kid sitting in church, home, my home church at Corinth. I can tell you where I was sitting and a preacher talked about the unpardonable sin. And there was this horror that came over me that what if I've already done it? 
the very fact that I could understand that in that moment meant that the Holy that it had not happened to me because I still had ears that could hear. And God had not turned me over into the darkness, but he did wake me up to reject the one who reveals the Son of God. Everybody listen. To reject the one, the Holy Spirit, that reveals the Son of God leaves you unforgiven, and I'm telling you today, it is fatal. I'll say it again. To reject the one who reveals the Son of God leaves you unforgiven, because without the Son, there is no forgiveness, and that is fatal. Where is that point of no return in the rebellion? I don't know. But I know there is a line that's too far. There is a sin that leads to death, and we cannot pray someone back from that point. In Hebrews 6, verse 4, one of the clearest descriptions of this, it says, For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, those who have tasted the goodness of God's Word and the power of the age to come, and who then, and who then, they've tasted the Spirit, they've tasted the Word, they've tasted the goodness of God, and then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing Him to the cross once again and holding Him up to public shame. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like fear is a healthy motivator on this issue. I fear God. I have no problem standing up here in front of you and saying, I fear God. I fear God. I fear His wrath. I fear his judgment. I fear failing him. I fear dishonoring him. I fear the, even the concept of not being able to discern that which is holy and that which is unholy around him. I fear it. And I understand that fear doesn't make me run away from him. No, that fear makes me run into his open arms and embrace the sun and embrace the sun. I feel like the only safe place around the Father is standing up next to the sun. I don't think there's any safe place in the universe when it comes to the Father except being connected to the sun. Embrace the sun. Kiss the sun. In Psalms chapter 2, I wish I had time to go into this in great detail, but I don't. In Psalms 2, verse 10, he says, Now then, you kings of the earth, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear. Rejoice with trembling. Be afraid. Submit to God's royal son. His name's Jesus. Or he will become angry. And you will be destroyed in the midst of all of your activities. You will be destroyed. For his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. Submit to God's royal son. Some English translations put it like this. They say, kiss the son. 
Kiss the son or he will become angry with you. Kiss the son. There's a whole lot of time when I, when I finished my Bible study and I know people would think it's weird. When I finished my Bible study and I get ready to lay it down, I'll, and I lay it down. Because I fear God. Do you understand? For his wrath can rise in a moment. So when is our submit and bow to God's royal, royal son moment? When? So when? When do we, okay, the fear of God is real. When is our submit to God's royal son moment? The moment he calls your name. That's the moment. Next verse in John chapter 5. This is the next verse as we go toward the end. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. For God's son holds them securely. And the evil one, while God's son holds you securely, the evil one cannot touch them. Somebody say hallelujah. The only safe place for you in context of the father is that you are in touch with his son. For the evil one cannot touch them. Verse 19. We know that we are the children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. So there's five truths. Do, do you see? There's five truths. Keep that scripture up on the screen. Number one, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, right? You know that, church? It doesn't mean we don't sin. We don't make a practice of sinning. Number two, God's son holds them securely. Do you know that? Helps me sleep at night. Number three, the evil one cannot touch me while he has me. Number four, we are the children of God. We are the blood-bought children of the Most High God. Do you know that? We know, we know, we know, we know, we know. There's one more in that verse. The world around us is under the control of the evil one. Do you know these things? John's trying to reveal the world around us is in control of the evil one. He's real. The spirit war is real. The spirit of Antichrist is real. And many will die a horrible death, eternal death in this war. There's only one way to survive. Submit to God's royal son. Kiss the son, lest he become angry with you. And his anger rises in a moment. Kiss the son. That's what Psalms chapter 2 tells us. The children of God will be the only survivors in the spirit war. I've said it now for four weeks. The children of God will be the only survivors in this spirit war. God's children do not make a practice of sinning. The spirit of Christ will convict us and we will repent. Do not quench or reject this merciful conviction of the spirit. Do not test God. Do not test God by dancing around the line of apostasy. Do not test God by dancing around the line of rebellion. Do not test him. Do not live in the fear of the world. The one that is in you is fully sufficient to get you to the promised land. Remember, you have already passed over from death to life. You're just waiting for a new body to put your soul into. There's two more verses in the end of 1 John. Here we go, verse 20. And we know, and we know that the Son of God has come. And he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God 
And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his son. Jesus Christ, he is the only true God and he is eternal life. That makes me want to sing a song, but I'm not going to do it. But it does make me want to sing a song. And we know. Do you? Are you sure? You can be today, right now. Submit to God's royal son. Or he will become angry and you'll be destroyed in the midst of all of your activities. For his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for those who take refuge in him. So here's the closing. Here's the closing of the end. How would you close this powerful letter if you were John? If you were the one writing this letter, what kind of a closing would you make? What would the end of this letter be if you were John? You might be surprised by John's final verse. If you haven't already read ahead, you might be surprised. Here we go. Verse 21. Last verse. This is the end. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. The end. The perfect ending. What? Don't let anything or anyone take God's place in your heart. Church, this is it. Do you know inside of that is the greatest commandment? In the end, that's all that's going to matter. Life in me or death in me. The greatest commandment of God is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And I hear John saying, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Because there's a spirit of Antichrist and he's a deceiver. And he's going to come and put all this stuff in God's place in your heart. And you'll start to worship it and you won't even know you're doing it. The end. Twelve sessions of 1 John. I could probably have made 30. So it began, listen, with the word of life. This is it. He is the word of life. And then it revealed he's the message of light so that you'll never have to be in darkness. And then he told you the truth about righteousness so that you wouldn't be wrong about being right. And then he gave you the new old commandment, which everything is based on love. And then he said, don't do it. Don't love this world or the things of this world. For if you love this world, the love of the Father is not in you. And then he told us the Antichrist is coming, but the spirit of Antichrist is already here. And then he said, Father, keep them safe. And then he revealed who the true children of God are. And then he said, don't be like Cain. Don't do it. And then he announces the details of the spirit war and reveals who the true believers are. And today is the end. And if you are here today and feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, can I just say this in comforting you today? You have not gone past the point of no return. But I'll tell you, today is the day of salvation. Today. If you quench the Holy Spirit, there is no guarantee that he will ever come back to you and call you again. I'll ask Chad to come on out for the invitation. Today is the day. And the reality is this. It's this simple. Who in the world would turn this down? Who would turn down eternal life? You remember that commercial that Optivo, the chance to live longer. 
People would pay whatever they had to pay, sell whatever they had to sell to get that medicine that would give you a chance to live longer. And today it's free. A chance to live forever. Eternal life. By the source of light moving inside of your temple. Who would turn this down? You won't believe it. Is he inside of you? Do you have life? You've already crossed over from death to life. You're just waiting for a new body to put it in. If that's you today, if you've already crossed over, he's inside of you. Let's sing a song of celebration. He has redeemed us from the grave. But if not, the invitation today is for you to come receive, drink this living water, find life in his name. Let's stand. The invitation's open.